Hello again, dear listener. You're back on the Virtually Agile podcast. In today's episode, we talk the power of branding. Is it better to be good or to be known? You know how this works. If you found the episode valuable, why not share it with someone else? And of course, subscribe to get the latest episodes as they land. It's time. Oh, hi there, folks. You are back again on the Virtually Agile podcast with Chris Stone, the Continuous Improvement Coach. Today, I'm joined by the founder of Everyday Agile, a no-nonsense ex-armed forces individual. How are you today, Jack? Yeah, good, thanks. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. Absolute pleasure. So you will do a far better introduction than I, Jack. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and what you're about? Uh, Yeah, so obviously, my name's Jack. Mum and Dad thought they were cool, so it's just J-A-C. There's no K on the end of it. It's the Welsh way of spelling it. Yeah, the X Forces thing's interesting because I, I don't I don't tend to talk about that anymore for no particular reason. I just think there's far better people out there doing doing better things and saying more relevant things than I could now. But I think it was definitely it's definitely given me a a foot in the door over the years. I, think, I don't think there's any denying that. Um, yeah, I, I own, run, direct a business called Everyday Agile which is a, a challenger consultancy based in the northwest of England. Um, you know, I'm sure we'll get on to, to talking about brand and things potentially, but we know who we are. We know we know who we're up against. Um, it's not for everyone, but it was never built for everyone. It was a bit of a happy accident in the way that it's it's scaled over the last, especially two years. Uh, just trying to do trying to do things a bit a bit differently, really, or maybe maybe not differently, but trying to communicate in a way that that people, potential clients, can digest. Um, so it's been a bit of a yeah, been a bit of been a bit of a learning journey over the past few years. But I, I do want to say, you know, I think you're someone who, all right, fair play to the way you step out of. Well, I don't know if it's stepping out of your comfort zone, but the way you, you, you conduct yourself online, I think, you know, I tip my hat. You, you, you know, you definitely do stuff that I, I wouldn't do just because, I, I, yeah, I, I just wouldn't do it. By I'm trying to give you a compliment, but it's not coming out very well. You know, the way that the, the amount of free <laughs> okay, stuff you give away. Saying thank you for the compliment. Yeah, yeah, the, the amount of free stuff you give away, you know, the, the how, 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 I suppose how open and vulnerable you are on on LinkedIn, because that's the only place I really see you, I think is commendable. Um, so, well done, I suppose. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. You mentioned there, and I, I guess I'm really keen to understand, what is it that I'm doing that you feel isn't something that you would do yourself? And, and why is that? I treat LinkedIn as a game, I suppose. And when I think of it as a pie chart, you only see that much of the in terms of the rest of my life. And I'm happy with it. I don't I'm I, I, I I'm not there. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy with exposing certain things behind the curtain from time to time. But it I'm I'm comfortable with what I share, and even more comfortable with what I don't. So I think, but it, 
but I think what you do is, you know, they, they need people like we need people like you to to be a voice for others and to you know to be honest about whatever path they're on and whatever they're experiencing. That's a very good answer. I think it's always to each their own situation with these things, and I, I like the way you said you're comfortable with what you share, but also more comfortable with what you don't. I think it's a quite a, a powerful statement there. You've also touched upon a point which. I think is worth reflecting on further. And that's one of the reasons I am so open is because I believe there are people out there who don't quite have the, either the same confidence as yet or the position to enable themselves to be as open. So it's easier for me to go out there and say, Hey, I, I struggle with ADHD or I've got depression because if, if that has any repercussions on me, I'm comfortable with my ability to find another opportunity. Whereas there may be people out there who have less confidence in that. They may be in, in, in less of a position of privilege and therefore they can't do those things as openly. And if they don't see people like me willing to do that, then yeah, we're going to continue to struggle with some of the, the things that we struggle with in silence. What's the cost to you for that though, out of interest? I don't consciously see a cost. And no one's flagged to me, hey, I've not wanted to hire you because you've been so honest. And I mean, in terms of you as physically, emotionally, mentally, is there a cost there? Like, is it tiring? I don't find it tiring because I don't necessarily feel emotions as strongly as others. And therefore, it, it doesn't feel like it's something that drains my energy to, to do this. What I actually find, what it's, it's interesting, what I, I find more difficult is when someone asks me a, a question about how I, I feel about something. Let's say I'm in a coaching session uh, and someone says, well, how do you think that went? My mind kind of goes blank because I'm not very good at describing emotions. Like for me, like a very default state is, yeah, it was okay. That, because I don't feel the, the strong positive or the strong negative. And then when someone continuously asks you that question, like, how, how did it go for you? What did you like about that? I'm like, well, that, that was kind of okay. And so I, I find that side of, side of things, I guess, more difficult, but I don't find it something, a struggle when I'm doing that and, and sharing on, on LinkedIn because it's not, not quite the same. It's more of a, I'm putting that on myself to answer those questions or share that when it's different when someone kind of drops that on me in the moment or does it in some sort of therapy session or in a coaching session or, or otherwise. Anyway, we're not here to talk about uh, that side of things. I'm really keen to talk about you about the power of brands and brands in the product world. And I've got, a, I guess, a starting question. Is it good or is it better to be good at what you do or is it better to be known out there? Good question. I think you have to have a mixture of both. I think I can only talk about me as an example. Well, I can talk about others as an example, but to answer the question properly, I think there are many people who are above me in terms of agile practitioners, much more, you know, much more experience, much more articulate and the way they describe things, much more empathetic, much more skillful. But no one knows who they are. Um, and I think it needs to go hand in hand, especially 
in the market as it is today. Now, but from a product point of view, I think it's still a mixture, but 90% of people, I can put the links to these studies and in, in, I can send them on to you and you can put them in the notes if you want, but you know, 90% of people consider just two brands when purchasing. And I was thinking about this conversation before. If I ask you to think of the top two online collaborative tools, which two spring to mind? Miro, Mural, if I'm thinking virtual whiteboards, if I'm yeah. thinking communications, then I'm going to go down the routes of Slack and... Slack and... I, I'd say Teams, but just because it's so prevalent and on, and everyone can access it, Teams... Yeah. So the, yeah, the first one was the, was the answer, you know, online collaborative tools in terms of whiteboarding, you think of Mural and Miro, but how many others are there? It's just that those two have got such a strong brand and that's not just from the product, that's for how they, they market themselves, the community feel, the swag that they send out to people, you know, the, the you know, when they invite people, invite people into the, into the building. If you're outside of those two, you're an underdog. Like that that is the reality. And especially when I'm again can link there. Studies show that sixty percent of customers who feel a high brand sort of connection are more likely to buy even if the cost is higher. So Gymshark, for example, are their clothes, is their are their products any better? than the bargain bucket of Sports Direct. Maybe, but running tights are running tights. It's just Gymshark, for example, have got such a strong brand and such a strong community that the brand sometimes outweighs weighs the product. And I think some, some organizations may have the best product out there, but if they've got a weak brand or if no one knows who they are, it can be difficult. And I don't think a lot of product, I don't think many people in product, product managers, product owners, product gurus, whatever self-title is out there. I don't think brand is spoken about that much. It's all about the tech and the problems it solves, which is all great. But if no one knows who you are, you're a scarecrow in a field that no one's walking in potentially. I say this often when it comes to the public speaking side of things right you could have the the best ideas in the world if you aren't able to share those ideas in a way that people remember or maintain focus on you and and you're in that session distracted on your phone then the message the great message you have will fall on deaf ears and won't be remembered outside of that that auditorium or, or location and the same is true if you've got the best concepts in the world the best ideas in the world but you can't deliver them in a way that people know you exist then those ideas won't be used or or people won't benefit from them 100 percent. so i suppose back to the original question is it is it important to be to be good what was the, is it important to be good or do people need to know who you are i was kind of is it better to be good or to be known today i'll say it's better to be known for the right thing i should ask i should ask there are people who have become infamous for not something you would sit there and go, well, they, they've done this great, amazing thing. They've just become viral for something we might consider less, less powerful, less exciting, less 
less of a contribution to the world, but they are more known and therefore they are able to sell products as a consequence. I'm not going to name certain celebrities who have achieved that status, but it, it happens. I will. And yeah, you see those people. Uh, you can say, go for it. Wh which names are you going to share? Go out. Uh, what, does, what has Simon Sinek actually done? I think start with why is the most overrated thing out what there. What Personally. Like he, he, he's great and he's, he's a very, he's obviously a very good marketeer. But what, like you dig a bit, like what is he, what's his, what is his background? What has he actually done? You know, post before that video. And I'm sure, you know, I'm sure, he, yeah, like I said, I'm sure he's a great consultant. He's definitely a great marketer. I think like a lot of, you know, like many people who's just at the right place at the right time. Just, I don't, I don't get it. I've never understood the hype. But that's just me. If there's enough demand for something and people like it, they'll buy it, right? Yeah. If you can, if you can convince enough people to buy it, buy into it. But that's a powerful brand, isn't it? He is a brand. He is a powerful brand. He is. He is a brand. He is uh, what, what they're calling the solopreneur these days. So I, I had aspirations at one point of becoming an entrepreneur, running a consultancy like, like you do, running Everyday Agile. And then I got to the point where I was like, all I'm doing here is making harder work for myself in on the things that I don't enjoy doing, because there is inevitably a, a huge degree of pressure and administrative stuff that comes with that. You've got to do the hiring, the firing, the, the you know, all, all the stuff that comes with running a company. And I learned actually what I'm better at is the stuff that I enjoy creating and enjoy doing that I am able to motivate myself to do consistently. So I switched my thinking towards the, the solopreneur mindset where you yourself are the brand. And that's an example of what Simon Sinek does. He's the brand. Obviously, he's got a company that sits beneath that that, that is where the, the money channels through. But he himself is the brand. You say Simon Sinek, a lot of people know who you're, who you're talking about. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that's really self-aware of you. I think I've taken the opposite approach. I think... If if someone if someone came with a certain amount of money tomorrow and bought the business, I would probably would I? I'd probably start something else. But I'd be quite happy to to not be there to, to be front and centre. I th I actually think, and again, it's interesting, isn't it? That's why it's good to have conversations like this. I think there's more pressure on being, you know, the solo, but because of the amount, because it has to be, you know, one. Not, I'm not going to say you, one has to be then the product and the front and center. So I don't think either approach is, it's horses for courses, isn't it? But I would find it more difficult in your position, I think, personally. Again, horses for courses, different different preferences. I think for me, it's because where, where I'm solopreneuring, I don't have as much responsibility for other people's stuff i can just do my own thing and i can do that very well i don't mind being the i guess the center of attention in that respect and i can leverage the thing i'm great at which is creating cool ways of doing things and in an entertaining way then it just it just works for me and my brand of adhd so it's just a it's just a discovery and i think it does take that self-awareness now i think the reason for the initial belief that i should create a consultancy was just because I, I that was the paradigm that i knew you know if you were an employee and you wanted to become a self-employed you would either be a, a limited contractor and just contract to one company at a time 
or you try and run a consultancy. And, and it was just just a lack of awareness as to what the other options out there that drove me down that direction more than anything. I like it. I think it's obviously working. So. I'll keep doing what works for me. We, we talked about some of these these big brands then. So Gymshark, you, you highlighted, are they necessarily better quality than you know, a, an alternative? And if you think about some of the other big brands out there, right? Uber, one of the biggest companies in the world, or the biggest brands in the world, you could say. If you go to a company, a country, sorry, and you're trying to get a taxi, you can probably use the app and find an Uber service nearby. Famously, they've, I think, only just become profitable 14 years after being launched. And yet one of the biggest brands in the world that, that changed the way the, the taxi or the, the transport industry worked, arguably for the better. What are your thoughts there? I mean, depends. Depend. If I was a taxi driver, I probably wouldn't think. Um, so it depends on who you speak to. But again, if I anchor myself back to that, ninety percent of people only choose two brands when purchasing. You know, if you're stranded somewhere, so it happened to me the other week, or, or the week before Christmas, the train broke down. Um, I, I had to get home. I was in the, I'm in a lucky position where I could afford to get a taxi home from quite a far distance. Who do you think of? Well, it's Uber or you're trying to bring around a local taxi company. Uber is always going to win in that scenario. It was easier for me. I could track where the car was. And if that one didn't turn up for any reason, I could get another one pretty quickly. So in that case, if you're if you're thinking about a taxi at the moment, I suppose yeah, the the two brands I suppose would be Uber. I'm sure there's another. I'm sure there's another. I can't remember the name of it. I'm sure there's another one out there. But I suppose Bolt, what I'm saying, Bolt Bolt's quite a quite a big one. Is it? I know in the Middle East it's Uber or Kareem, for example. So what I'm saying is the the Uber brand is going to suck people in, and it's just really good that it's convenient. The customer doesn't care whether they're profitable or not. I think you've touched upon... Yeah. Right. So if I'm a customer and my options are, right, I'm going to get in this taxi outside a train station with a complete stranger that I don't know who they are. And yeah, it might look like a taxi, but I'm not 100% certain. And Or, or I've got to call up a, a taxi company. And, and my experience of taxi companies in the past, I'm not sure if this resonates with anyone, is you call them up. Maybe you don't get through. Then you say, oh, I need a taxi. And like, when and where and what and why? And it takes, oh, it'll be there in 20 minutes. And then you're kind of waiting around. You don't know when they're going to come. And then there's a lot of unknowns there. You then add in Uber, which made it really super simple. You load up an app on your phone. You see exactly when it's arriving because it's all data tracked. You know who's going to pick you up, what reviews they've got. You've got a level of safety there as well because you know that it's all being tracked somewhere and if there was, God forbid, any accidents, then there is a, an audit trail saying who picked you up and where. There's a huge way that Uber changed the game for, from a perspective of just getting about in a safer way that's less friction for the customer. Yeah. I mean, the downside is my, my, my dad was a taxi driver in a small seaside town where I'm from. It's just... Supply outweighs the demand, especially when there's lots of taxis, traditional taxis, on top of, uh, and then you pile on, you know, the drivers or on top of that. 
it's easy for for us to talk about the theory behind it, but you know, the negative is it, it you know it's ultimately impacting someone's livelihood. Some God, that went dark. So should we given we got a nice we got a nice segue here. So we've got the the concept of taxi drivers having the paradigm shift for them and and the impact there. They either had to develop new skills or maybe they pivoted to working for for Uber. We've got a lot of people in the agile world out there right now in scrum masters and coaching roles that are struggling to find work. Hmm. There is currently more supply of those roles than there is demand for them, evidenced by the, the a lot of people being out of work. What's what's the response for those those people? What do you think they should be doing? I think they've got to show people what's on the menu, but it's nothing new to what I've been saying for not you know not years and years. I've been around years and years, but especially for the last two three, I think in a world where supply outweighs demand, the, the the mission, if you like, is to become at the forefront of someone's mind. And that comes back to reputation, brand, whatever you want to call it, personal brand. If people don't know what you're about or if you're piling in onto threads that you know, the, the end client is going to look like and go, probably going to avoid that person because you're trying to, you're trying to live up to someone else's expectation of what you should be like online. It's probably not, it's not going to do you any favors. I think talking in language, cust- uh, clients or customers understand is really powerful. Just trying to set yourself apart really in a, in a, in a world that is, yeah, I keep saying the supply outweighs the demand like this whole argument about remote work and, and things like that i get it i understand that people should people should have the the opportunity to work from where they want but people have still got mortgages to pay and these companies have every right to sort of say this is the expectation yes we've got it wrong yes we did say you could all work from home initially we've learned our lessons this is our expectation based on the culture we want to build you can either accept that or not you know i don't don't know i don't i don't personally see it as that um, as that part in saying that i'm i am what you would describe as a dunk which is dual income no kids so that's very easy for me to say yeah, there are there are always circumstances which make a decision easier or or more complex for you. If you have a mortgage and you don't have another source of income, then you may be more needing to accept harder rules, like you have to be in office X number of days a week. I, I'm with you in that I believe it's every company's prerogative to set how they feel they should work and the conditions in which they work. I do feel the companies that have those hard and fast everyone in the office x number of days a week without any kind of blurred lines or without any appreciation of the nuance they are the ones that are perhaps being a little myopic and may cost themselves i mean it's ultimately it's a bit of loss aversion right there's a bias around loss aversion if you if you win a hundred pounds hundred dollars a hundred euros that doesn't feel as 
as powerful as losing 100 pounds. And I think it's the same when it comes to the remote work side of things. Everyone experienced it for years. They were then told, oh, yeah, this is going great. You're doing such a good job. We love you. Thank you for all your hard work. Oh, and the data is telling you you're just as productive, if not better than before. And you will get, we're, we're continuing this way permanently now. And then, oh, no, we're going to take that away now. We're going back on what we've said. And we haven't shown the data saying you have to be back because the we're actually worse off. So it, it can feel like a, a much stronger, more powerful emotion from a loss perspective. I also think sometimes, and yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I just think that sometimes that in the world, in the world of work, again, going back to my theoretical pie chart, in the world of work, there's only a small amount of people who post about this stuff on LinkedIn in the whole world. And then I often sit there and think, well, okay, someone's posted that X company said that they're mandated to be in two times a week, Tuesday and Thursday. I've plucked that out there. It's not a real example. On paper, you can disagree with that, or one could disagree with that, you could debate it. But then I think, well, is that really the case? You know, if I was if I went into that company as a permanent member of, you know, a permanent employee and said, Well, this is my situation, could we could I could I maybe change it? I don't know if these things are as hard and fast as people describe on LinkedIn sometimes. And I could be wrong. But when when we never know unless we're there, unless we're in the actual room don't really know what's going on. And it's only a very small percentage of people who are commenting on it. Um, so I, I do always, because every permanent place I've worked in, they've, they've been very understanding. They've been very, they've been very empathetic. They've tried to accommodate people. What's, what's fascinating, I've seen these scenarios play out when I was, when I was last at a permanent company. I wouldn't say the, the names. There was a, a very serious CEO of a, a certain demographic who strongly believed everyone had to be in the office for us to be successful. And post-pandemic, he's like, you will either come into the office or you can find a new job. Now, that was the messaging. Then you go a level below that to the, the other members of the C-suite who I was working with. And they had a you know, less hard and fast rule. They were trying to be uh, flexible. They were trying to help people be in a location that works for them. So it's not necessarily what you see isn't always the, the reality. It's an interesting one. And, again, and I think I, I think this is this is going to be one one of those things that there's not a, not a there's not a, a, a defined answer for it. It's, we're still learning this over no. the years because we we've not reached this level of um, hybrid working ever. This is this is a new experience for for the world. We've never had this many people working in distributed locations across the world on various different models: two days, three days, four days, five days, one day, and we're learning. It's all new. Yes. I th so, so two points, I suppose. Um, depends on the industry. I think like you just alluded to, like if you're, if you're working in the, in the defense sector, you can't be surprised that they want you in to talk about secret stuff. Like you, you gotta go in with your eyes wide open with that because you can't do it at all. Not at the moment. There's, there's very, that just can't happen at home for, for the, for the right reasons. So there's always going to be an expectation depending on the industry. The only thing I would say is back to what people should be doing is if you're on LinkedIn looking for your next gig and you're just publicly slating job adverts for not being the perfect agile job, like, come on, who do you think that's not making you look good? Is the, is the one thing I always, you know, that may be a bit of feedback you want to give in the interview, 
or it may be an opportunity if you were to apply for it and to be successful. And we talk about empathy and safety and blah, blah, blah. Think about the person who's who maybe has written that job advert that you don't think that you don't think they may just be some week one recruiter who has been given this to to post on LinkedIn. And if every job, every if every agile job spec was perfect, what's the point? We wouldn't, you know, we've sort of completed it at that point, haven't we? So just be careful, I think, because it don't, you know, that's the first place I go when looking for someone is on LinkedIn to see if they're being a dick or not, and if they have. Probably, I'm probably not going to go and ask them to come and work with us. I think it's interesting when someone starts being active on any sort of social platform, often their default is I have to say the controversial things. I have to say something that will capture people's attention. And, yeah. and it, I mean, it's, it's backed by annoyingly the algorithm itself. The algorithm is designed to show you stuff that people have argued and commented on. It's driven by, you know, the clickbaity psychology that catches us. We want to read the thing that disagrees with what we think. So it's it's annoying that kind of psychology backs it. It often, to me, is a starting point for many people that are new when they're, when they're, they're creating content or being active. I don't think they need to start there. I, I, would, I would personally see more value in someone showing a genuine opinion that appreciates both sides of the argument. And I'm, I don't mean just be an it depends person and just, you know, sit on the fence continuously. Mm. You can appreciate the different perspectives without lambasting someone, breaking someone else down to to build up your own argument or viewpoint. No, I mean I don't think I've ever crossed the line. I think I I think I can back up ninety nine percent of the things I've ever put out there. But I I've always gone after concepts and ideals, never people, because I think that is crossing. I think if I'm subtly or unsubtly prodding fun at one of the big four they're not worried about me so i think they're fair game and they can take if i'm after jeff the it consultant naming that person individually i think that's different so i think you've got to choose your target wisely i think you've got to be able to back up what you're writing and stand behind it uh, but yeah don't i don't you know, yeah then never go after I think there's been a bit of that over the past week. I don't get involved. Just let them all fight out, you know, eat themselves alive. Good for business. Popcorn mm. and just read. Popcorn and just read, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, not, yeah. I don't know what the answer is. I can understand why people are turned off by Agile if they look at some of the threads and some of the comments. Uh, but from a business point of view, there's a nice little alternative over here who just wants to help you out. That's the way I see it. Carry on, folks. Keep eating each other a lot. You'll be at the side benefiting. I get you. Okay. So, I mean, you, you mentioned there you, you've not, not been afraid in the past to kind of shy away from maybe the risque, the controversial, the unpopular opinions. What do you think is your your most unpopular opinion that you like to share? But yeah, I've made some, some, I've made a few mistakes. I don't think I say anything. Well, I mean, what do you think? What, 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 I don't think I've said anything. I think I've really, yeah, what, I'd love to get some 
from your thoughts? I think I know one that you might have an opinion on. I mean, I've 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 loved seeing some of the the, the marketing materials you put out there, kind of hinting at the innuendo. Um, mm. I, I remember the one; it was like getting into bed with a, a big consultancy and and, be, and being left disappointed, and you kind of had the the advert of the the couple together. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because that's that's my sense of humor. I can appreciate others might take that differently. Yeah, they did, and not be receptive to that because there are there are very different viewpoints. Like I've had people tell me off saying the Tinder retrospective I created is unprofessional, doesn't belong in the workplace, and dehumanizes people, or uh, or infantilizes things. And I was like, well, it's actually it's backed by science. We naturally read left to right. It's uh, such a widely popular mechanism now that modern UX apps build kind of the swiping mechanism into it. It was never intended for that purpose. Yeah. You can't please everyone. I think what it is, I thought this might come up. I'm trying to be more thoughtful as I get older. And people can take this how they want, I suppose. But I think what I've worked out is the reason why I may go to places where other people may not is because I'm pretty comfortable with my circle. I've got friends. I'm not really on LinkedIn to make friends. If that's an outcome, then great. So if someone from the Agile community doesn't like it, that's okay, because they're not the target. They're never going to buy from me anyway. And the analogy I've sort of been thinking about lately is if you think of a football stadium and you think of the away end, which is smaller than the rest, like I'm after the away end, like, there's no point in me having a network full of home fans, if that makes sense, because they're not going to buy from the business anyway. I think I think I have made some mistakes in terms of uh, you know, some some of the marketing. But in terms of posts, I, th- I think the, the biggest one where where we, you know, may have different thoughts is the whole um, training thing and long-term training and, and stuff like that. But again, that wasn't after I wasn't going after a person. That was going after a concept, not necessarily the people who were doing it. Because I know some of the people; they're great people. And just because I don't think it's whatever doesn't mean it's not. I'm just the bloke with the keyboard. So let's let's talk about that then. What what was it about the the longer term training that for you wasn't there? Or, or... I just think call it what it is. It's it's, it's it, call it a journey. Call it. it it's a. I, I again. I, I've got no experience of it. So who, what can I? You know, secondhand information. It's a community of practice that you pay to be at. And someone very high up in the industry has put their name on it, and has stepped away from the certified training. But it's probably paid his mortgage. I, I, I reckon he's doing all right off the back of it. So it's just just call it. Just it's just training. It's just a. It's just a. It's a community of practice. Where you share ideas, but it's it's still it's still training in my eyes, and I, I know I'm happy to be proven wrong. Correct. Okay, I've never thought of it as a, a community of practice. There is definitely a community elements to it in that you do continuously learn with one another. At least the the, the learning pathways that I deliver, I can't speak to all of them. Yeah, of course. It is still it is still training because. That the way that the Scrum Mastery Pathway that Jeff Watts has created is delivered is it's two days of training. Yeah, you've got a, a clear structure for that. 
then you meet monthly. And what I like about this part is that whilst you're bringing the same group of people together, they democratically choose the topics they most want to learn about next. And then the guide, i.e. myself, would then prepare materials to teach about that. And then, yeah, that, that changes every month. So it's, it's, it's learning in someone's context. As an example, right, we've, we've done our first beginning of our training, and that's the, the standard kind of two-day style at the beginning. Beyond that, a month later, you've got a team or a group of people that might have had some issues with resolving conflict. And they say, oh, we'd love to learn more about that. I will then share with them techniques about that, get them to practice it. And they get to go away and, and try that, put it into practice, come back the next month. This is what we tried. This is what we learned. This is what worked. This is what didn't work. So I think it goes beyond a community of practice because you're not just leveraging the learning from that community. You're also still teaching over a period of time. For me, I think the strongest impact this has is the fact that it builds in the feedback loops to reinforce learning rather than it being a standardized syllabus where you might learn a lot of things at the beginning, you're expected to retain all of that information, which is not always the case. You then get a shiny certificate, which says I'm a certified scrum master or otherwise. And then you're expected to be competent and perform in that role, whether or not you've understood it correctly, interpreted it correctly, or able to demonstrate that you can do what you've learned about. For me, the longer term learning pathways are about that that learning, but also seeing someone is able to do what they've learned. And for me, it makes it a, for, for me and from what I've seen with the learners I've work, worked with, it makes it a, a stronger practice than some of the alternatives. Not that those don't have value. They, they, they fit in certain companies and individuals' needs from a learning perspective. Not everyone wants to commit to a, a several month journey. Not everyone has the budget for that, the time for that, the capacity for that, the energy for that. But if we're talking about trying to demonstrate something being closer to mastery and supporting someone over time, as opposed to a one-off session, that's where the value comes. Oh, you, I, like I said, you may have, I maybe, I'm open to being wrong. The way you've articulated it, it's hard to, it's hard to disagree with. Maybe it's, I just, it's just not my bag. Maybe that, maybe that's it. I just, I wouldn't want anyone to start. Well, and what I have seen, not from you, it's like say, oh, well, two day courses are bad. Well, some people just want that. Some people, some, that's what some people want to, you know, and some people want them the, the longer journey. Like I said, I'm just, I'm just someone with an opinion. It doesn't mean it's the right one. And, and I've never done it. So, um, can't really speak too much about it. I just think it's, I don't know. Just copy it. It is what it is. It's, tra it's still training. Call it a learning pathway. Call it a journey. Call it a guide. It's still training. I suppose that was my biggest it's, book. It's, yeah, it's learning and development, right? It's learning and development, which is part of some people's development plans. And for others, mm -hmm. it's, well, I just wanted to learn a new technique. So I might just want to do a, a Scrum at Scale course and learn about scaling. That might be all they're looking for. I don't necessarily say it's the only option. I've never professed it's necessarily a better option for everyone. It fits definitely certain people's progression. I believe it is more demonstrative of the capability that often clients are looking for because I've 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 been at the receiving end where clients have had a bunch of grads who have just done the two-day CSM or equivalents and been sold to as a competent scrum master, and that's not the case. I've also had a lot of clients that are looking to build capability. And this is where one of those you know, training options are 
there. That's what they're there for. Okay. Absolutely. I'm not trying to convince you that they're better or worse. Uh, and what I love about what you've said, by the way, is that you are you are willing to be proven wrong. So you, you don't have a, a set stance and just saying that's it forever. Like we're, we're human. We we learn new things, the scientific approaches, we get new information and we, we take it on board. We've all got a week. That we do. That we do. Right. So I want to ra- slowly wrap yeah. things up again. Uh, there was a one final point I wanted to touch upon you with, and that was... You don't practice as an agile coach or a scrum master anymore. And, you, and you've, you've mentioned that a, a few times recently. You also then don't write about it. And I'd love to hear more about that. Why is it you don't write about it anymore? So, no, so I'm not doing it at the moment. I'm under no illusion that one day it all might collapse. You know, it will be just me again. I will happily, I mean, I'd deliver pizzas if I had to. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but you know what I mean. It's just an example. I'm under no illusion that it may just be me going from contract to contract again one day. I, I'm probably going to contradict myself. No, am I? Because I don't really, I don't really like to write things about things that I'm not doing. So for me to start talking about the daily scrum, five tips to increase increase your backlog refinement. Think that would be a bit disingenuous at the moment because I'm not doing, and I think that's where the whole talking more about brand and trying to put a spotlight over what the great work that people are doing who are representing the business. I think that's my job at the moment because I can't pluck stories out of the, the all, all the stories that I've tried to tell in the past. They've been because they've either happened or are happening at the moment. I am not in the weeds from that point of view. I'm in the weeds elsewhere, don't get me wrong, but from that scrum mastery, agile coachy point of view, I can't talk about something I'm not doing. Interesting. Well, I appreciate you you sharing that, honestly. I, like you, I believe that if you are portraying yourself as an expert in something, and perhaps trying to sell something as a consequence, then you should ideally be practicing or have relevant, ideally more recent experience than something that was decades old. Think about how fast the world moves. If I was to go back a few years ago, maybe several several years ago, most companies would mostly only do Scrum. Whereas now there's like all sorts of hybrids here, there and everywhere. So the, the pace of change in terms of what people are doing and what people are using these days, and therefore the stories you have, they become less and less relevant. And I think for me, the, the challenge I see sometimes, you see people who, who are going out there telling these stories that are decades old, or even training people in a, in a role that they've not performed in the modern era. And therefore that can feel disingenuous. Okay. I would say some of the people who are selling either CSMs or learning pathways are in the position. Essentially so. The learning pathways, again, I'm not trying to be specifics, but one of the, the, the entry requirements for the guide process for the Scrum Mastery Pathway that I'm part of is that you have to be practicing. Like you're, you're a guide more than you are a trainer. Again, not all do that same approach when they're other when they're doing other longer term durations. And again, I'm not trying to sit here and call out names or say individuals. 
this is more a, a personal opinion. I believe if you are representing yourself as an expert, if you're training the next generation of people performing in a role, ideally you should be doing so from a position of I've experienced this, but not 20 years ago. I've experienced this in a time where we were using these these approaches, these tools, this different hybrid working situations and otherwise. If you've got someone who's teaching someone about how to be a scrum master, they've only ever worked in a, a physical face-to-face -face location in a banking industry. And the only stories they've got are related to that. That to me would question the, oh, the, 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 the richness of that experience perhaps. Yeah, I agree. I think we're on the same page that I, I suppose we're, I'm just coming at it from a, I can, my job is to chief thirst officer. I think I'll refer to it as for everyday chart. My job is to get the right sort of attention on the business and even more so on the people who are representing it because they're up to some absolutely fantastic things, you know, probably beyond my, my, my skill set. And that's, that's where the focus is. And that may change, don't get me wrong. If it all crumbles and goes to pot, I'm sure you'll see me giving scrum, scrum, daily scrum tips at some point. But for now, I would be, yeah, it's not, it's not the role I'm in. All right. Amazing. Well, we're, it's time to wrap things up. It's a pleasure to have you today on the show, Jack, the chief Thank first you. officer of Everyday Agile. That's a great title, by the way. Yeah. Cheers, Chris. Appreciate it. Where can our listeners learn more about you and your work, Jack? Uh, LinkedIn, Jack Hughes, um, or type in Everyday Agile, type in Everyday Agile into YouTube and it's on there. I only use LinkedIn, nowhere else really. I'm not that hard to find. I'm six foot three, lanky and ginger. So um, come and say hello. And feel free to question anything that I've said. There you have it. All right. This is something I'm a huge advocate for. You can question, you can disagree with someone and their opinions. Just do so respectfully. Appreciate their other stances that you might be looking at it from. And you don't have to attack someone else to bring your own ideas or concepts up. Now, folks, if you liked the episode, time for a shameless plug. Do that thing. Subscribe, follow, all that jazz to get each episode as it lands when they hit the shelf. If you're thinking of being on a podcast yourself, slide into my DMs. I am also just as thirsty as Jack when it comes to getting people on the show. I wanted to clarify that before I went down a really dark path there. Uh, and we always welcome new voices. Until next time, don't stop believing. Thanks again, Jack. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.